So for emergency managers, we need to be living in that world of the gray rhino. Uh, understand what all threats are and then planning for those threats. That's an all-hazard approach, right? But with a little bit more understanding of the impact of those disasters. In a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers, where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. I have as my guest, Todd DeVoe. Uh, he's the host of uh, the Emergency Management Network podcast. He's also an adjunct professor of emergency management at the University of California in Irvine. Uh, and he's a contributing author of the book, Campus Crisis Management, a Comprehensive Guide for Practitioners. And he's also a national speaker on the topics of emergency management, crisis management, and business continuity. Todd, I want to thank you very much for coming on our podcast. Oh, it's always a pleasure. You're you're actually inaugurating a uh, a new uh, season and a renewal of of the podcast. It's uh, been dormant for about two years. It went dormant during COVID. It's it's been uh, uh, socially distancing, so to speak, <laughs> uh, during this period, and now it's uh, I guess it's coming back because COVID's coming back in some ways. So. <laughs> Yeah, you follow the you follow the coattails of COVID for sure. Yeah, you know I can't believe it's been two years since you know we did this because you know been on the on on the show before, um, and of course you've been on 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 my show, um, you you know and and I I always find our conversations very interesting and we could probably talk for hours and I know that we have to limit this for uh, the guests will probably get bored uh, on, on that but uh, we do have great conversations for sure. I'll uh, I'll kick things off because um, I read your article on the 30, 60, 90 day uh, principle of disaster recovery uh, that you posted, you know, yeah. on the EM network. And I do really recommend to people to go and to read that. And um, for folks who are listening or watching this podcast, uh, I will include a link to these articles. Uh, and I really do recommend uh, and going and getting a little bit more information. So in that article, you cite Nicholas Tlaib's book, Anti-Fragile. Can you explain to our listeners what anti-fragile is in a nutshell and how this applies in post-disaster recovery? Yeah, and and, and I want to I want to go in a little depth on this uh, for on the on the concepts of anti-fragility and and Nicholas Tlaib or Tlaib, um, how he got there. The majority of you out there are probably familiar with the concept of the black swan uh, and and what that really truly means and you understand that that Taleb is a he's a quant even though he doesn't admit it <laughs> he's and and he uh he he looks at things very uniquely in the sense of patterns of of data right and and so his argument is that black swan events um aren't necessarily black swan events that you if you look at data enough you could time them out and the, the guy made his money or makes his money still, I guess, on looking at financial black swans, if you will, funding them and betting on them. And so like I say betting on them. It's a wrong term. It's not like he's doing anything illegally. He's using it through um, investments and stuff like this. That's So it's really an investment strategy, if you will, that he talks about. 
And, and, and so we've taken the concept of the investment strategy of these turbulent times and whatnot with the black swan, and we've really moved them into uh, the ideas of emergency management and what that means. And that goes back into Luker's work on the gray rhino. And so, you know, the concept of was, was COVID a black swan or a gray rhino? And I think that's a wonderful debate to have, by the way. And I would say anybody in emergency management or public health knew that COVID, or at least a concept of of sort of flu-ish type event, uh, was definitely a gray rhino. Like we knew it was there, um, whether it was going to charge at us when it charged, um, you know, was we couldn't guess that. But the idea here is that we had pandemic flu plans. Everybody had a pandemic flu plan. And we got close a few times, right? SARS, Mars, uh, the swine flu, you know, all these other smaller, not pandemics, but, um, you know. Um, Epidemics or outbreaks. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're damn close to pandemic, right? You know, like we, we thought about pulling the trigger a few times, but we didn't. So, yeah, so that was more of a gray round of it. And that's, that's, that's why, the reason why I bring this up is because now you take a look at the writings that he did on anti-fragile and and the concept of anti-fragility is is again this is he's looking at economics but we can we could take those and parlay them into disaster planning emergency management right is he's saying like look if we put all of our economic our financial eggs in one basket say for instance um you know if you are and he uses this example and, and i'm going to kind of butcher it a little bit but he uses the example of a doctor versus a cab driver and he says that in an economic turndown, if a doctor loses his his or her job, they they're done, right? Like that's all their financial money is in one basket. Whereas a cab driver has the the ability to make money in different ways, right? Whether it's through Uber, whether it's through cab driving, whether it's through, so so they're 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 able to to go back. So that's and so he's saying in that uh, that somebody like a cab driver um, is a little bit more financially anti fragile. And in fact, when times are bad, sometimes those those people with the cab driving job and is is a uh, somebody who can actually weather that storm more than say a CEO or CPA or something like that who has like this. So that's that's the concept, right? So how do we parlay that into emergency management? Well, we look at communities, and we see how do we make them disaster resilient, and that's the first step into the concept of anti fragility. And I wrote a piece on DRR as well. And, and how we should really embrace that um, as emergency management professionals here in the United States. We're worldwide, right? And I know the UN has done a lot of work on DRR. The concept here is how do we make each section of our community resilient to disasters? And so the concept of anti-fragility, again, he comes in this is saying that robustness, resiliency, those terms um, aren't strong enough. And some of them are squishy, right? And I spoke about this concept of squishiness with the word resilient. And even like there's a beer company that uses resilient. There's a makeup company called resilient. You know, um, there's these things like, you know, resilient makeup. Like, what's that mean? Right. So what does resilient mean in, in to you? It could mean something different to somebody else. Right. But when we take a look at anti-fragile, which is a stronger word, meaning that you get stronger after a disaster mm-hmm. or the disaster makes your community stronger. That's the concept. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into that that we can go into later. But that's the basics of what we mean when we're looking at Taleb's concept of anti-fragility and applying that to 
uh, emergency management and disaster readiness. A, a couple of things I wanted to just make sure our listeners who have heard some terms that uh, may be familiar to most, but I uh, just want to make sure we clarify them. And that's the terms of a black swan and then that of the gray rhino. Because I just, again, for listeners who may know some of my podcast history, did have a show that had the black elephant imagery to it. Uh, the black elephant clearly is a cousin of the gray rhino. So um, I'll I'll ask that question if you could just answer that, those two terms. Sure. So the black swan event um, in England, uh, back in the 1800s or maybe before, I forget the exact timeline on it. You know, somebody said, oh, there's a black swan and that's impossible. There's no such thing as a black swan. It never exists. And then when English, um, you know, explorers and ended up going to Australia, well, lo and behold, they found black swans and they were like, oh, this, this does exist. It's a thing. And, and, and so that became an analogy to something that you would say never existed, but somewhere out there it does and it's going to surprise you. And that's what a black swan event is. It's something that, you know, it's a one-off. It should never happen. And then lo and behold, it, it occurs. I tend to believe that most things are are the gray rhino. And the gray rhino is something that is there. We're aware of it. And if you know anything about rhinoceroses, or rhino, no, I said that, I think that's wrong. Is it rhinoceroses? Is that the multiple or is it just rhino? It might be just rhino. I think rhinos you, sort of the yeah. you know, <laughs> rhinos. Deers, deer, whatever. Right. So no, if you know anything about rhinos, right, is that um they're 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 blind, not blind, but they, they don't have they're nearsighted, farsighted, they can't see far. Um, so they have like a very small circle to where that they protect, and they're very protective of that small circle, right? So you can be driving unbeknownst to yourself through a rhino's um protected area and they're going to charge you and you've seen probably videos out there of like the gray rhinos um charging into a uh, a caravan of vehicles and stuff like this because they'll just run into whatever they feel is a threat and so that's the idea so when are you being charged by the gray rhino now they may be docile and sitting over uh 200 yards away from you but if you make that 150 you know if you get within the 150 yard range they're going to charge at you that's the concept behind it and so um, instead of gray, instead of black swans, we see these threats down the down the road, and and we're hoping that they stay down the road. But we recognize that they're there, and and then what do you do to plan for those events? And so my argument again is that COVID, right, or at least some sort of uh, pan flu event or pandemic cold, if you will, um, was out there. It was going to hit. So I'll tell you an interesting story. I was talking to an epidemiologist. I interviewed him uh, for my old podcast and uh, it was in October of 2019, uh, early October. And so I asked him, I asked the question a lot of times of what keeps you up at night. And he said, a respiratory disease coming from Asia. He didn't say China. He just said some Asia. And that's what he does. He's an epidemiologist. And so that's what kept him up at night. And, you know, this is October of 2019. And obviously we know, November of 2019, you know, Wuhan occurred and then, uh, you know, the rest is history. So, so again, not a shock to that particular epidemiologist. That wasn't something that he went, oh, yeah, oh, wow, this is scary. This is crazy. No, nope. yep, this is what we're looking at. So kind of pushes through that our great rhino events that, we, that we're looking at now 
um, here and we'll look at California. Would you have ever thought that a hurricane would hit California? 99% of the people would say, probably say no. Mm-hmm. Those of us that emerge manager would go, absolutely. It's happened before. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the, now it's been a long time, but it has happened before. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. In the early spring, California had something like 21. I could be off of the number. Don't quote me on it. But somewhere around the, the 20 or 21 tornadoes. Now they're not F5s. You know, they were, they were the, you know, F1 or two did some damage, hurt some people, but we had tornadoes in, in, in Southern California. If you ask the majority of people, does California have tornadoes? They would probably tell you no, right? So these, you go, oh, that's a black swan event. No, we know there's a history of tornadoes. Just there's not a lot of them, right? So for emergency managers, we need to be living in that world of the gray rhino, of looking, uh, understand what all threats are and, and then planning for those threats. That's an all hazard approach. Right, but with a little bit more understanding of the impact of those disasters. So, on that note of anti fragility, how did the recovery in Paradise, California, after what's called the campfire uh, in 2018, exemplify uh, the recovery framework that you wrote about in the sort of 30, 60, 90 day principle of recovery? So, with the 30, 60, 90 day principle of recovery, is what what you're looking at here, and and the time frame is just, it's a time frame that we put on. It doesn't mean it's going to happen within 30, 60, 90 days. It's saying, what are the most important things that you have to talk about in those first 30 days? And then once you've got through those, what are the, the next step would be the 60 days. What are the most important things that are in front of you in those 60 days? And, and, and then into the 90 is a more long-term, right? Nine, 90 plus days. So that's really what that means. Um, when we think about triage in medical, the first thing we talk about is start where you stand, right? Mm-hmm. You cannot, if you walk into a room with an overwhelming number of victims or to a scene with an overwhelming number of victims, you can't treat them all at the one time, but mm-hmm. you can start right where you stand and start treating that person, triaging them, giving them a level and then moving on. And then very quickly, you can have a room of a hundred people triage knowing what you're doing, which is the French word for sort right? Because we have to be fancy that way, right? So we go through and we sort what our most important things are down to what can wait down to, well, you know, we'll get to what we can get to, right? Um, Type of situations. So for instance, um, obviously the most important thing is life safety, right? And then when we get to, we can get to, it'd be like rebuilding the park that just to kind of give you an idea of the, of the balance of importance. Yes. We want to rebuild that park, but it does not, important as rebuilding somebody's home. You know what I mean? So so that's that's that concept behind it. <clears throat> with with paradise, there's a few things that are that are critical. Well, one is is that the population obviously re- was reduced. And we've seen this happen time and time again across um disasters. New Orleans, for instance, they originally had a 50% loss in the population. Now we're still at a 20% loss in the original population from when that storm hit, and that was in 2005. All right, so we're looking at the same type of numbers as far as percentage-wise of loss of population to paradise. But what does that mean? That means people are unwilling or afraid to move back to uh, to that area, or maybe they passed away, um, you know, whether due to the fire or due to things afterwards, financially can't uh, get back there. There's variables why that occurs. Mm-hmm. Then, so 
it's really important to understand this reduction of population. But the population that comes back, what do we do to make them anti-fragile, right? So working with building codes, working with construction materials, keeping areas clean, clear, I should say, around the home, those important things uh, become critical to that rebuilding, which means that if a fire comes again through again, which the likelihood of living in those areas that you will have some sort of fire, whether the speed of this one or not, wind-driven or whatnot, homes will be protected. Now, to weigh this out to the fire that occurred in in, in Hawaii, um, there's a few success stories of homes, and one was just by complete sure, you know, luck that the home survived. And what I mean by that is this: these homeowners bought this home, they went through a remodel, they put a tin roof on their, on their house instead of asphalt roof um, because of a water leak type thing. They had some issues with water. Um, they had to dig up around their house. So they had this, this defensible space around their house, which they didn't grow any. It just was just timing wise. Nothing grew to it. And that, that house stood and, and almost like Mexico city in, in, in Florida where they had the last house standing, it stood due to, the construction of, of a particular home. And, and um, I did a, an inter- interview on with Fortified, which is a standard of, of building. And they talked about, well, yeah, we talked about that one home in Mexico beach, but no one talks about the um, Habitat for Humanity homes that Fortified helped build that were just a few blocks away from there that didn't suffer damage due to proper use of materials and they, as they say, one na- extra nail in the roof, oddly enough, makes a big difference. And, and so these building standards become important. And so Paradise embraced this and said, hey, we're going to help you build. We're going to go through the process. We're going to get grants, insurance. We're going to work through all this. But when we build, we need to build stronger, smarter, um, and, and and better. And now, because of that, using those standards, you, you know, the, the city of Paradise has become a, a stronger city because of that and using the 30 60 90 day principles is the 30 day principles is getting the area clean ready to to rebuild and the 60 day prints part of it is getting homes uh, approved to be built into that area using new higher standards uh, of of building materials and is it expense more expensive it's going to be a little bit more expensive but can we absorb that expense and maybe even through government grants um, absorb that expense because at the end of the day it becomes cheaper and and so the new standard used to be one dollar one dollar in prevention saved seven dollars on recovery i i saw a paper the other day that stated it was like one to 15 so there's looking at that just going and there's a variable on it too by the way but but so you can even be as high as like you know one to 15 one dollar spent in prevention and so i as a taxpayer who to be honest with you, I, I mean, like, I'm not like big into uh, uh, frivolous spending in government, but the idea here is that I, as a taxpayer, could get behind using f- taxpayer grants to help rebuild homes in this area that would be robust and anti-fragile because I know at the end it's going to save us money. Now we could go into arguments of whether they should be building that area first or not, but that's besides the point, you know, but, uh, you know, we could just debate that later, but it is an area that's been historically lived in. Um, and it's, it's the wooey. Yes. Know. 
But anyway, it's a whole other story. I, I guess the, you know, we're talking about catastrophic loss here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether we're talking about paradise or recently the catastrophic uh, fire in Lahaina, it's catastrophic for those communities in terms of the loss, not only, I mean, most importantly of life, because uh, up until the Lahaina fire, Paradise, California had one of the highest losses from a wildfire, at least in recent history. And now that's been surpassed, unfortunately. Also consequent loss of loss of homes and other buildings and things of that sort. So, and I'm going to link to an article that I raised with you on the Los Angeles Times about five years on and survivors of the Paradise Fire sort of looking back on on sort of Maui and looking at Ma- the situation in Maui and sort of saying, okay, well, this is sort of what they they can sort of face. So with that in mind, I mean, you know, when we're talking about a cat cat incident and the amount of money that is put forward. So um, in that article, they talk about uh, federal government aid and state block grants and the PGE, PG&E settlement uh, that took, you know, years to, to litigate. A uh, total of about $900 million total, probably not including insurance and other assistance and so forth, uh, roughly about $300,000 per resident. Now, there's other particulars, right? When we talk about community resilience in Paradise, they don't have a sewer system. Uh, so they, you know, operate off of, um, you know, wells and, and, and septic tanks and things of that sort. Um, but, you know, th- that process requires plan approvals, permitting and things like that. So the, the town is around 9,000 uh, residents right now, where it was 27,000 or so, I think, uh, prior to, to the wildfire. So, and I think you mentioned uh, New Orleans and the recovery of Katrina after Katrina and things like that. I guess when we're talking about recovery, are we talking about it specifically just in terms of raw m- numbers? Or are there other factors that we need to take into consideration? Oh, there's definitely other factors that we need to take into consideration. And, you know, one of the things that I really teach, right, and, and I stress this to, to my students, is that if you are running a county, a city, you know, any, because it's, everybody goes, oh, you know, water districts or municipal districts too, um, it's a little bit different, right? So if you're running a county or city or township, you know, anything that you're dealing with population of people, um, you know, and then land use type things is you need to write a recovery plan today. And you need to look at this and, and what do you, how do you want to shape what your, your city looks like? Now, this can sound conspiratorial, you know, to some people, right? They go, oh yeah, the, you know, big government wants to come in and, and, and take away my property and, and, and do different things with it. And it's, it's not, that right it's not rezoning you're not trying to zone out living conditions or 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 move factories into where homes used to be or vice versa and you know, get rid of factories and, and move homes there that's not the idea of having a recovery plan beforehand the idea is have a plan to have a process so approval of building permits um well to meet that standard uh can be moved faster through the process to so cut that red tape so people understand what they need to have before they walk into the room, into the building when they're looking for permits. Um, you know, understand a process of hiring, maybe temporary or contracting with uh, building officials, so you can get building inspections inspections done faster. 
Is there a process of saying, hey, we don't necessarily think it's a wise idea to build homes in this area? We're, so for instance, say in the mangrove, say in South Carolina, which, you know, you say you shouldn't really build there. We saw this happen on Long Island, New York, on, on Dune Road. Uh, they're just not too far from where, where my dad had a house. They, they said, hey, you just can't build there. Well, you can rebuild there, but we're not going to bail you out. That's basically what they said. So so they're saying, hey, this is your property. You can rebuild there. But now insurance, you have to, your insurance may not cover you. We're not going to cover you again. Um, so you're on your own. So we're not saying no, but we're just saying. And then so that makes it on the person to economically recover themselves. And then the other side of it too is it makes it harder for to, for them to resell. So I mean, it's it's hard. What's it called? They're tough luck, right? When it comes to this, you can but do buyout programs, which can be expensive. But the idea here is saying this is the area that's safe to, right? And and there's examples of towns. Um, there's a few examples. One I think can think of off the top of my head is it was in in Illinois, where they moved the entire town out of the flood flood zone. They left the flood zone for farming and for for parks knowing that it was just going to be crops or, or fields that got flooded. Nobody was losing their home off of this. And then, you know, so that's an example of moving, doing trades, uh, trading properties, you know, for, with, for town properties or city owned property, you know, uh, for people. So you can do swap. There are various different methods that you can do. And, and, and it's not a one size fits all. It's what fits for your community. Now on the other side of this, is that recovery plan should not be done in a vacuum, right? You shouldn't sit in an office and type away and say, here's our recovery plan, put it to the city council and get a vote for it. You really need to do some charrettes and have community members buy in on that because if not, then you're going to be caught up in legal issues for a very long time, right? And you say, this is what this community wants to be, and this is what we can be to become stronger, better, and, and, and after a disaster. You know, that makes people go, oh, Maybe I should make defensible space around my home, right? Mm -hmm. You could pass some of those rules that say, if you don't have defensible, defensible space around your home, the city will come in and do it for you, but we're going to charge you. And, you know, I, I live in the wooey myself. I understand the risks. I understand the fact that my insurance company that I had for many years said, we're no longer going to insure you. And I had to go find a different insurance company. Now we're insured, but I don't have branches of my tree touching my house. I have a, a concrete a tile roof. I don't have an asphalt roof. I have my vents that are using small mesh. So embers can't get through that to get into my attic space. I've hardened my home specifically. So I practice what I preach. Um, and so I've hardened my home for, for wildland fires. And, and I know that I look out my back window here and I see this beautiful hillside uh, that hasn't burned in 30 years and scares me, you know, uh, but I am on the downslope, so it's a little bit, we have a upslope, which is a whole different story. But yeah, could we burn here? Absolutely. You know, and we have plans and here at home, and I understand what the risks are. And um, and I've done things to mitigate that risk using DRR for my own home that I think that we should be using for communities. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. And uh, one thing I did want to point out, and that is, I will include a link to the home that you referenced uh, in Lahaina, the one that survived, because as you pointed out, it was like that house was a poster child of what you should do to to mitigate the uh, you know potential hazards from a wildfire. And you know some of it was clearly intentional, 
others, you know, just coincidence. They, you know, <laughs> luckily that they had built at that time, so nothing around it really created any any fuel for that house to burn. And, and it was some flooding issues that they were trying to mitigate, not fire issues that they were trying to mitigate, which is the funny part. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the article mentions, and I, I, I references that, you know, some residents decided not to return. Some of them uh, due to unavailable social services because they weren't available any longer because some of the medical facilities had not, yeah, had not basically been rebuilt. Um, or because of the psychological trauma or the sense of safety that they felt in returning. The reality is that some residents will retreat and relocate, as our uh, colleague Kathleen Tierney has referenced in her book on sociology, uh, uh, on, on disasters. Um, you know, is migration away from the wooey a new reality? And when I say wooey, I mean wildland urban interface for those who are not familiar with the term yeah sorry i, I you know that's the problem with our with our job we, we, we talk in acronyms and weird words all the time and and uh, people are like what are you saying what language are you speaking <laughs> it is english sort of so so is there migration i i don't think that pre-disaster migration is is occurring and i say this i don't have evidence in front of me, right? I'm just going with anecdotal evidence. I see this in California specifically, um, you know, traditionally um, up in the San Bernardino mountains, homes were, were relatively inexpensive. Um, what I'm, I guess technically they still are relatively inexpensive, but you know, that's a, that's a whole. So I remember when I was first looking for a home, when I got out of the Navy um, and I had a whole $110,000 pre-approval on, 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 on buying a home. Uh, my, I was like, woo, right. There's nothing by the way. That's even back then it was not a lot of money. And so we're looking at like condos, uh, townhomes, stuff like that. That's probably the, the level of home I could have purchased at the time. And homes that were out of our reach were in the, in like the $300,000 range. Um, today are multi-million dollar homes, just kind of put that perspective of, of, of the time of moving. So friends of mine who were in the same boat as me actually went and bought a house, beautiful house um, up in the San Bernardino mountains, gorgeous house uh, for that would have been like 300, $400,000, you know, down here in the orange County, LA County basin uh, for like $80,000. And I really, for, for a strong moment was thinking, man, is it worth the hour <laughs> commute to live up in the mountains and to come down for, to have in that kind of a house for that little money? And, and yeah, I really thought about doing it. We, we didn't pull the trigger when we ended up doing something else, but, but again, my wife was like, Nope, not going to do it. I don't want to be up there in the winter time. There's all these other issues associated with it, you know? So, yeah. So <laughs> uh, my point is, is today those homes that were going for, you know, 80, thousand dollars are, are are now six seven hundred thousand dollar homes and people are buying them mm -hmm. you know um still moving up up there so i don't see the the i don't see people moving quickly away from that and that's a place that burns a lot you know um, arrowhead big bear crestline mm -hmm. auto wild wilmar all those all those places that you know we think about fires in california and they burn so yeah so i don't see people running away from their wooey I do think it's interesting 
that you're seeing more and more restrictions on new construction in those areas, which I think is right. Although Los Angeles County approved uh, a large property development in the Wu, you know, area that historically burns, I'm really interesting. And there are going to be higher end homes, right? There's like million dollar homes that they're building over there. I find that kind of interesting that got approved because what risk are they taking if that if that area burns? And what does that mean for for insurance and and for for recovery going back to you know, if you're going to get $300,000, that's not going to rebuild your multi-million dollar or a million plus home, you know? So, so those are, some, as a policy guy, I, I look at this and go, well, why, why was that decision made, you know? Um, and what, what is the long-term effects on that decision? Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't see people retreating from the wooey pre-fire. Right. Post-fire. Yeah, absolutely. People don't want to go back. Same like an earthquake, Right. After an earthquake, you see the population in California um, take a small dip, but then it comes back up. Well, and that brings up a question. I know this is not one that we necessarily had prepared for, but do you think that um, real estate agents, builders should be um, forthcoming really, you know, when when you go to buy a home, you have to divulge what, uh, you know, any of the issues that have been in the house uh, before, if you've had termites, those sorts of things, what kind of care that you keep of the home on a regular basis, the whole like sheet that you usually are given and you have an inspection done and all that other good stuff, right? Um, But when it comes to risks, flooding risk, fire risk, things like that, it's not necessarily something that is, for folks who are not aware or not familiar with uh, a certain region, um, that they may be buying into. There was an article I saw uh, this weekend about that, or this past week, about um, you know uh, th- that you know homeowners should be made aware. There should be a full disclosure of these sorts of risks, or that individuals should be mindful when they're going to buy a home. I know for my own self, so when we went to go, we moved out of Brooklyn out to uh, New Jersey, northern New Jersey. And we were looking at homes and I remember seeing a place and there was a uh, an outlet of the, I think it was the Rahway River uh, that we're looking at. And then I asked the question, I said, has that ever flooded? And they said, oh, it flooded a long time ago. And it's only about a foot of water. <laughs> and I said to my wife, I said, well, that we're done with looking at this house uh, because you can't, we can't move the house. We're not, I'm not going to put up preventive barriers. So, right. um, you know, I was highly aware of the potential for flooding. Um, so that was a strong consideration. So anyway, with that long-winded question, uh, do you think that that should be made, uh, sh- should be a disclosure about the risks of where people are buying homes? You know, I, I talked to a real estate friend of mine and, Oddly enough, his house burnt down uh, during a fire, and we can get to that here in a, in a minute. But that burnt down all the way, which was actually more more problematic than than if it burned all the way to the ground. And I asked him that question. I said, you know, should should this be disclosed? And and you know, his from the business standpoint, he's just like, well, you know, people should do their own homework. Anyway, he has a fiduciary responsibility to his um, his clients to get the most money he could possibly get for them. So telling people, hey. If you buy this house, don't forget you're in the wooey, might burn down, you know, probably would turn them off for purchasing it. Now, does he have an ethical and moral responsibility for saying something? I, I, I would say absolutely. However, you, 
buying a home should do a little bit of homework and understanding what you're going into. So I think there's some onus on the home buyer. It shouldn't always be on, on the home seller. Now, that being said, I think that the county, when you go, when you're, when you are working with a real estate agent, uh, the county or city should say, Hey, the last time this area burnt or flooded or whatever was this, and this is what the damage was done. There should be a place where you can get that information readily available. And and I want to go to Houston for, for a minute. So NPR did a wonderful story. It was on Houston after the flood, I mean the hurricane, but created floods. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about this community that was very new, very beautiful homes, rolling parks, all this kind of stuff. Well, you know where they built it? Well, they built it in this area and on the map. It said reservoir. And it was a dry reservoir, but it was a reservoir nonetheless. And so as Houston flooded, it naturally flooded, flowed into those reservoir areas. And so the home, it was by design. And I know some of the homeowners were trying to sue. I don't know what what the disposition of this case was, but they're trying to sue the county and all this other kind of stuff. But the county was like, oh, yeah, it was on the map. And the the reporter said, yeah, it was on the map, but you needed like a freaking magnifying glass to read it. Right. I mean, small print, small print, but it did say flood zone on the map. Yep. So, so, but there's no, was not an easy place for the homeowner who, or for the potential buyer to find that it was a flood zone and by, by design. And, uh, and, and I thought that was kind of immoral in a way uh, to, to hide that information. So I think we shouldn't, should we force the seller to articulate that they live in the wooey? I mean, somebody that comes to my house and looks in the backyard should go, Oh, well, that looks like a threat. You know, what's the last time it burnt? And, you, you know, okay, should I take that risk? Oh, 30 years ago was the last time it burnt. No homes burned down the last time it burnt. Okay. All right. So it's pr- pretty pretty safe that the bet that your home isn't going to burn down. These homes have been here since 1965. I probably a bigger threat to earthquake than I have to, to the home burning down from the... You've covered a lot of ground and given our listeners and my students uh, who listen to my podcasts, a lot to think about. And uh, I want to thank you very much for your time uh, and appreciate, you know, re-inaugurating the, the Riding the Wave podcast on project management for emergency managers. We didn't even get to talk about project management, so that'll be our next topic. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and first of all, I, I want to say thank you for inviting me to be on uh, this. And it's a pleasure to 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 be the guy kicking off your your, your reboot of the of the podcast. I also want to say congratulations on your book and on the on the classes that you are creating. And I'm looking forward uh, to the kickoff of your workshops in November uh, here in in California when you come to the conference. And so uh, I'm just so excited for you for both. For those who are listening, uh, this is, I guess, my shameless plug <laughs> that uh, I'll be delivering a, a workshop on uh, project management for emergency managers uh, two-day condensed workshop out in uh, Long Beach, California on Friday, November 3rd, correct? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. (laughs) November 4th. I know I'm going to get the dates. I forget the dates wrong. The days and the, uh, but uh, you'll see it. It'll be posted. So be delivered uh, around the time of the uh, National IAEM conference. And I'm looking forward to that. Watch out for that link and for registering it if you're going to be around uh, at that time. 
And um, so uh, we spoke with Todd DeVoe, who was the host of the Emergency Management Network podcast. He's also an adjunct professor of emergency management at the University of California, Irvine, and a national speaker on the topics of emergency management, business continuity, and crisis response. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, Todd. My pleasure, Andrew. You've been listening to Riding the Wave, hosted by Andrew Boyarski, president of Pinnacle Performance Management and clinical associate professor in emergency and project management at NYU and John Jay College.